0: So great to see you all. I want to share with you something that I found out about this week. And, and when I saw it, when I found out, it just really, it fired me up. And I wanted to share it with you. I don't know if you've heard of a community called Cascade Creek. I don't know much about it. I think it's kind of a retirement home. But this is why I discovered that each week there is a group that gathers together to watch the live stream of our services. Isn't that cool? Isn't that kind of amazing? Yeah. And so, I just want to say, if you are at Cascade Creek right now and you are watching the live stream of this service, we welcome you. You are not just watching this service, you are a part of our church family, and I can't wait till I can come and spend some time with you guys at Cascade Creek. I look forward to that. Now, isn't this a neat thing? Now, yeah, you can clap for that. That's cool. I get excited. Um, What I'm going to say next has nothing to do with the sermon. It's just going to be me talking uh, from my heart to you guys, especially anyone in this room or watching online who would say, this is my church, these are my people. Every single one of you who pray for this church, I want to say thank you. For those of you who give financially to this church, thank you. For those of you who serve on a ministry team, thank you. It's so hard, it's so incredibly rare that we ever get to see the full picture of how God chooses to use us to advance his kingdom. It's rare that we get to see the big picture of of the influence that we get to be a part of, but when we get to see glimpses of it like this, it's important that we pause and we celebrate. Now, can I share with you a little bit more encouragement? Would that be okay? All right, so no surprise, it's not news to anybody, over these past. Uh, three years, every church in America has had to walk a difficult road. Ours is no exception. And yet, God is not done using this church. There are so many things which we can celebrate and we can express gratitude for. I want to show you a picture of what our church's growth trajectory looks like over the past three years. Now, this zero right here, that represents my first Sunday as your pastor. I actually hold a world record among pastors for the least amount of time necessary to get a church down to zero people. <laughs> but it's awesome to be a part of a church where more and more people are wanting to come to hear about the good news of Jesus. You know what this spike is right here? That's our last Easter service. We live in a society where people still think it's a good idea to go to church on Easter. And so if there's somebody who you want to bring, who you would love to share this with, I want to encourage you, invite them. There's a pretty strong chance they will say yes. Pray for them. Pick up an invite card on your way out today. Invite them to come. Now, I don't know about you guys, but when I see this, that each, we get to be, a, this is a privilege to be a part of a church that's on this trajectory, it pumps me up. And if it excites you, and I hope it does, if it's meaningful to you, and I hope that it is, this is my ask that you would pray with us, that you would serve with us. And if you've been on the fence, and you haven't been willing to do this, I want to ask you, would you give financially with us so that we can keep this going? All right, so that's my kind of mini-sermon. Now I need to get ready. Do the real sermon today. We're in week seven. Next week is our last week. We're in week seven of our series through the letter of 1 Peter. And if I, as I've been reading today's passage and getting ready to share it with you, I keep thinking about something that happened that my dad did when my brother and I were young were young boys. Does anybody in here have a brother? Anybody have a little brother? We know how they can be, right? This is, this is a picture of me and my little brother Travis, right? You could probably tell by looking at him that he's one of those little brothers that needed to be beaten up from time to time. Like, you can see it, right? You can see it. And so, listen, now he's much bigger than me, and he's a deputy sheriff, so we don't fight anymore. (laughs) But we used to scrap. And I remember one time, I think my dad was just tired of it, and he grabbed us by the shoulders. He felt like he had these massive hands on our shoulders, and he walked us to the living room to look out the window. And he said, there is a world out there full of ugliness that I cannot protect you from, but I don't have to let it in our home. Okay. (laughs) Message received dad. There's something about this passage today that really reminds me of that moment. It's as if Peter is walking us to the window to look out and he's saying there is a world of ugliness out there that you cannot be protected from. You're going to be in it. But we get to choose. We get to choose not to tolerate letting that ugliness come in into our home into our family. And so I want you to hold that in the back of your mind as we're we're walking through this passage today where, where Peter is giving encouragement and he's giving instruction to men and women who are following Jesus. And because of their allegiance to Jesus, they are being mistreated and they're experiencing abuse. Chapter four, Peter writes this, therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves with the same attitude Because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Now, I don't know, maybe I'm out on a skinny branch here, but I can't help but wonder, did Peter laugh out loud to himself when he wrote this line, arm yourselves? Because at one time in his life, he was a guy who was literally armed with a sword. There was a time in his life that he thought that violence was the right response to people who opposed you. Now, the night that Jesus was arrested, he tried to hack a guy with a sword. Jesus rebuked him, and then he watched Jesus willingly submit himself to arrest, to brutality, to to torture, to the cross. And now, Peter is perhaps kind of poking fun at himself by saying, arm yourself. But he's doing so in a way that's also teaching something very serious and something very precious, if ever you're in a situation where people are just annoying you or they are abusing you because of your allegiance to Jesus, strap up with the attitude of Christ. And how did Jesus describe his own attitude? In Matthew 11, Jesus described himself this way, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, which meant his teaching, and learn from me, for I am, what's this word? And humble. Humble. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I want to encourage you sometime this week, go read Matthew chapter 11 for yourself. When you read it, this came right after Jesus had given a really hard sermon. Like it would have been hard to listen to. Jesus talked about judgment. Jesus talked about repentance. And then he ends it by saying, so come to me because I'm gentle and I'm humble. And gentle and humble does not mean weak and wimpy. It's just the opposite. It is strength that's held back and deployed to serve what is good for the other. And any man in here who's ever fought a toddler, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Anybody ever fought a toddler? Like when my kids were little, I used to wrestle with them like I was Ric Flair. Woo! Any Nature Boy fans in here? I'd wrestle with my kids, right? What does it mean to take on the attitude of Christ? It means this. Whatever strength we have, whatever advantage we might have, whatever retaliatory ability that we might have, we hold it back. And we use our strength to demonstrate Jesus-like gentleness and humility. We have to respond to abuse. We don't have to return it. And the question is, how do we want to respond? And the real reality check moment for anybody who wants to be a follower of Jesus is this. If you find your significance in what you achieve and accomplish in life, if you find significance in your reputation and what other people think about you, you will never be able to take on the attitude of Christ when you're mistreated. But if instead the deep cry of our heart is Jesus, my significance and my security is found in you, and the satisfying life is found in walking with you and joining you in your mission. We'll find that we are able to do this. And there's something you—I pro- know you already realize it. I'm going to put it on the screen anyway. Salvation is free, but that doesn't mean it won't cost you. It's free, but it doesn't mean it won't cost you. To be forgiven for our sins and all of our moral mess-ups—that is free to be fully accepted, fully forgiven, fully loved and fully delighted. And we are given that freely to be God's chosen, a royal priesthood, members of a holy nation, to be God's special possession. That is given to us freely. It is a gift of, of grace from Jesus. We accept it just by trust, by faith. Salvation is free. But it'll cost. And these kinds of moments, it might cost us our ego. It might cost us the fleeting satisfaction of revenge it might cost us our reputation it might cost us our love affair with power and being in control and it will mean the end of the relationship with whatever it was that we used to look to for significant security and satisfaction i think that's why jesus said jesus said take up your cross and follow me look at what peter said he said therefore since christ suffered in his body arm yourselves also with the same attitude because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin as a result they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires but rather this is what they live for for the will of god we don't live for our wants we don't live for our desires for our purposes for our agenda instead because we were in christ we live for his plans his purposes what he wants We live for His agenda. And what does it mean? Because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. I think what Peter is saying, if we've broken up with our old way of life, if we said we're dead to that, we are now walking a path following Jesus. That path might lead us into suffering that comes from people who are upset about that and they respond to us with abuse and mistreatment. So the question is, well, why would that happen? Why? Were Jesus' followers targets for abuse. To understand the answer to that question, we have to understand the culture into which Peter was writing this letter. And so we're gonna turn to a guy named John Barclay who's a biblical scholar and he's an historian, and I think he can help us get it. And he wrote this from the perspective of people in that day who were not Christians. Family members, who broke ancestral traditions on the basis of their newfound faith. He's talking about Christians. An appalling lack of concern for their familial responsibilities, the exclusivity of the Christian's religion, their arrogant refusal to take part in or to consider valid the worship of any God but their own, deeply wounded public sensibilities." Such an unnatural and ungrateful attitude to the gods even branded them as atheists. Believe it or not, the first people in human history called atheists were Jesus followers. Moreover, it was highly dangerous for even one segment of the community to slight the gods whose wrath was ever to be feared. Civic peace, the success of agriculture, the whole economy, and freedom from earthquake and flood were regularly attributed to the benevolence of the gods. The rise and spread of the Christian faith triggered deeply felt anxieties. The gods are going to get us, was the thought, if we don't stop these Christians. And believe it or not, every time that someone gave their allegiance to Jesus and they turned to follow Jesus, it brought disruption to their family and to their household. And if you've been here with us throughout this series, you probably remember that the kind of the key foundational piece of a stable society and a strong Roman state was the Greco-Roman household structure. And Christianity and following Jesus was viewed as a threat to the Greco-Roman household structure. One of my favorite figures from history is a guy named Tertullian. He was um, he was, a, he was a, a theologian from Africa. I have second century up here. He's actually lived during the, during the third century. He was a church father. and He wrote something. I'm going to put it on the screen. And when I put it on the screen, you'll be like, yeah, duh, we know that. But when he first wrote it, it was incomprehensible to the world at large. He said, a man becomes a Christian. He is not born one. See, back in that day, your religious identity was chosen for you. It was determined by your family of origin, by your tribe, by the community in which you were a part of. Again, if you've been with us during this series, you probably remember that your, whatever religion you had was determined by the head of your household. When a woman got married, she turned her back on her dad's religion and publicly swore allegiance to the gods of her husband. Religious identity was assigned to you It was never chosen freely by you. And yet it was perfectly normal and acceptable to kind of mingle in other gods with your own and mingle in other religious expressions with your own Uh, because Rome was a very pluralistic and syncretistic society. It's basically how we watch football. Like you might be a diehard Vikings fan, but you're gonna have a fantasy football team, which means you're gonna watch other teams play and you're gonna root for other teams too, but you're still a Vikings fan. But with the spread of the gospel, it was not only something new was happening, something unheard of was happening. These Christians, they turned their back on their old religious identity and their old practices, and they defined themselves exclusively by their discipleship with Jesus, followers of Jesus, and they were loyal to him alone. And that disrupted power structures civic engagement, and family dynamics. And when we understand that, it makes sense to us why Jesus one day said this. Jesus said, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Now this language is largely figurative more than literal. Now, the reason that Jesus used this weighty, provocative language is to help us see that giving allegiance to Him over all other things may create blowback, even in our own families. And some of you, some of you would say, Rick, this is not abstract. For you, this is personal. How many of you here have shed tears? Because you wanted to get baptized as a follower of Jesus. You wanted to go public with your allegiance for Jesus, but you knew that if you got baptized as an adult, it would create a fight with somebody in your family. How do we think about that? How do we respond to that? This is what we're learning. Our allegiance to Jesus may create conflict. Our attitudes shouldn't contribute to it. Our allegiance to Jesus, it may. It may create conflict for us, but our attitudes should never contribute to it? What's the natural tendency? What's just normal in life when someone feels like their well-being is threatened, their expectations are threatened, or their peace or stability is threatened? What just happens? What, what's the way? How does the world work? First thing we do is we put pressure on the people who we view as a threat, and if that doesn't work, we'll hurt whoever we have to hurt to protect the common good. That's how the world works. That's how the world has always worked. That's not how it works in Jesus' kingdom. In Jesus' kingdom, the hero dies for the villain. The king gives his life for the traitor. And the servants of the king follow the example of their king. Our church's mission statement comes from something that Jesus once said called the Great Commission. Our church's mission statement is we exist to lead people to be fully devoted followers of Jesus. And to understand what it means to be fully devoted, we break it down into three categories. Authority, who's the boss? Identity, what's the story I'm telling myself about myself? And activity, what does love require of me? What should the activity of my life look like? And over the course of this series, as we're reading Peter, we're seeing that that's exactly what he's talking about. He's tracing those three things out and showing us a trajectory of full devotion. Number one, look to Jesus. He is our authority. Number two, see ourselves through Jesus. He is our identity. And third, we want others to see Jesus through us, through the activity of our lives. If ever you were to experience mistreatment, you get to decide. You get to decide whether or not you make it easier or you make it more difficult for people to see Jesus in you. Nothing would make me happier for today's sermon to be a waste of time. I would love it if this was wasted on you. I would love it if nobody ever abused you or even annoyed you because of your allegiance to Jesus. I'd love that. But should you ever experience something like that, you get to decide. Are you going to make it easier for people to see Jesus through you? Are you going to make it more difficult for people to see Jesus through you? And it all comes down to who are we? Whose are we? And who do we live for? Keeping this going, Peter writes this next. He says, for you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. You have this old way of life, but you now follow Jesus, so you leave that behind. In your old way of life, you you were living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. This was an interesting church, wasn't it? They are surprised, they are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living, and so they respond by heaping abuse on you. I don't know if you use the word debauchery a lot. Do you use that a lot? If you don't know what debauchery means, it's basically all the stuff you hope your friends didn't take pictures of the night before. (laughs) All right? Stuff you don't want getting out. And I've been trying to figure out how can I make clear in a way that everybody understands what was Greco-Roman culture really like, but you get it but without me getting in trouble for being too graphic. I was going to quote a couple of guys from Greco-Roman culture, a guy named Demosthenes and another guy named Horace, but I ended up deleting their quotes because I was too embarrassed to read them to you. But it should suffice to say this. It was a sexual free-for-all. Prostitution was easily accessible and it was cheap. Literally the cost of a loaf of bread. There was nothing in that society that protected someone's dignity. What was protected was power structures and the ability to fulfill whatever your personal desire is. I don't know if you've ever been in New Orleans during Mardi Gras, or if you've ever walked the strip of Vegas at night. I've been in both places. Greco-Roman culture was far more intense than either one of those spaces. It was a lifestyle of objectification and entitlement to other people's bodies. And this view of life, this sexual economy, it permeated all of public life. And it was woven into pagan worship and what happened in the temples, and it was virtually impossible to escape. And there was immense social pressure to participate in it and to keep it going. Now in our culture today, in American culture, the details are different, but the theme is very similar. There is sometimes very strong social pressure and economic pressure to not simply affirm but to celebrate our culture's view of sexuality. And there can even be penalties if you don't. So what do you do? These men and women, they would have asked Peter, how do we, how do we live for Jesus while living in this culture? To which Peter probably would have said, the answer's in the question. If we take everything we've read from Peter thus far, it's going to lead us to this kind of conclusion. Be a fully present and active participant in society, but not in sin. You've got to be fully present. You've got to be active in your society, but not in sin. And I can understand why followers of Jesus sometimes want to shrink away and kind of abandon society, but we can't be an ambassador of Jesus in our society and abandon society at the same time. And it feels like a steep challenge but it's one that the early church did well and we can too. Pastor Tim Keller has done a great job of writing about this. Of what made the early church distinct? How did they rise to this challenge? Here are five features that, that they did that we can do too. It was multiracial. The early church was multiracial and experienced a unity across ethnic boundaries. It was a community of forgiveness and reconciliation. It was known. It was known for radical hospitality to those who were suffering and to the poor. It's one of the reasons that our church's vision statement is that we want to be the kind of church that people who are hurting love to attend. It was committed to the sanctity of life. Our church is committed to the sanctity of life. We love to partner with ministries that help moms and help women in desperate situations. And it was a sexual counter-culture. Following Jesus will put you on a path that leads you in the opposite direction of things that are beloved by our culture. And it is important to remember this. It is possible. It is possible to counter-culture and to challenge beliefs and behaviors without being combative and treating people like they're our enemy. Pastor Tim Keller writes this, he says, it was because the early church didn't fit in with its surrounding culture, but rather challenged it in love that Christianity eventually had such an effect on it. I would imagine today that there are people here in this room and you've loved kind of things that you've heard and you've really enjoyed the experiences that you've had here at Autumn Ridge. Maybe you're watching online. And you were hoping that you would hear something different from me today because you were hoping that we would be a church that affirmed or celebrated a variety of different sexual lifestyle choices. And it might sound like nonsense to you. It might sound like nonsense to you to hear me say and to hear us say, we love you. We are for you. We accept you. No qualification, no hesitation." The only kind of sexual activity that we can affirm as followers of Jesus is one man and one woman exclusively for life in the context of marriage. Not once you get engaged, not sex when you really, really like each other, but for life after you say I do, exclusively one man and one woman in the context of marriage only. And there are smart people I mean smart people who would say to me Rick that is ridiculous and maybe this deserves a longer conversation and it does but for those who would say this is ridiculous I got a question and my question is where do sexual ethics come from where do they come from we have options we have a variety of options to choose from the sexual ethics come from nature we have no reasonable basis to protect the weak from the strong. Well, what if it comes from society and culture? If sexual ethics come from societies, whatever is dictated by the ones with power is correct. How's that working? We say, no, they come from us. They come from individuals. If sexual ethics come from individuals, if we create them, we have no reasonable basis to ever protest when someone disagrees with us. But if sexual ethics come from a transcendent moral authority, we are all accountable. And anybody who would say sexual assault and sexual abuse is always wrong, and I hope you would agree with that, sexual assault and sexual abuse are always wrong, no matter what people think about it, no matter who's in power and how they use their power. If you would say those things are always wrong, no matter what, that only makes sense if there is a transcendent moral authority. And if there is, We are all accountable. What do you think we're going to read next? They will have to give an account. They will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. There is no escape. This is the reason that the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead. The gospel is preached to you. The gospel was preached to people long ago. So that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. There is good news and there is bad news. What should we tackle first? Let's go with the bad news. The bad news is everyone will be judged. This is the good news. We can either be judged on what we do or what Jesus did. There is a moral authority. To whom we are all accountable. And all of us continually fall short of his standard. And yet, Jesus, who is that authority, he took on what it means to be human and he came and lived a perfect life of righteousness, a perfect life of obedience. And then he willingly went to the cross and paid the price as though he had broken it all. He fulfilled the law twice. And when we stand before him, we can either be judged based on what we do or based on what he has done for us with his great love. What do you choose? What do you wanna choose? These words hit a little differently for me today than I thought they would when I was preparing for this message because yesterday morning, I stood over the bedside of a man and I prayed for him and I prayed with his family at the very moment that he took his final breath. Everybody in the room cried. But you want to know what that family did next? One of the things they did next? They sang a worship song because this dear man had trusted in Jesus and he was safe in the grace of Jesus Christ. Do you know that for yourself? What could keep you? What could ever talk you out of trusting in Him who gives to you so freely and so generously. The end of all things is near. From a biblical perspective, human history is like chapters in a book, and everything that happens after the resurrection of Jesus is considered the last times, the last chapter. All things being near doesn't necessarily mean that the return of Jesus is like soon, although it could be. It means that we live in the last times we live in the final chapter so what do we do in light of that therefore because of that be alert and be of sober mind so that you may pray prayer should be the air that we breathe if we are followers of jesus above all love one another deeply because love covers a multitude of sins offer hospitality to one another without grumbling why do you think he said that without grumbling Probably for the same reason that on shampoo bottles it says don't drink. It's because people do it. (laughs) Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. Our words are serious. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Earlier, you remember when I said it's kind of like standing at the window and looking out and there's ugliness in the world that we can't be protected from but we don't have to tolerate it in our home and our family. This is what it looks like to say we refuse to tolerate that ugliness amongst us. Karen Jobes is just a brilliant biblical scholar and she summarizes what we just read in a few points and she calls it this is what it means to live from Jesus' victory. Four points. She says this, number one, think rightly and be clear-minded so that you can pray. What does it mean to be sober-minded and clear-minded? It means that we line our thinking with God's word. What we do now is important. When you get together in small groups and study, that's important. A part of being a follower of Jesus is daily making his word a part, just devotionally reading it for yourself and spending time in prayer personally. That's an important part of the lifestyle of a follower of Jesus. Persist in love for one another that covers sin. I've been thinking about what does that mean? And certainly it means that we just kind of overlook stuff. You, you know what it's like when you love somebody and they've got faults and they annoy you, but you just overlook, you don't even bring it, you just love them, you just let it go. Right? I hope you have a relationship like that. There's a part of, that's what that means. There's thinking about this and I read something in my own devotional reading this week. I was reading the book of Proverbs and it just leapt off the page at me. It says, it says, love covers, covers over an offense. But someone who repeats the matter separates close friends. I think at least part of what Peter is saying is we don't gossip. We refuse to tolerate gossip because gossip is the enemy of love. Be graciously hospitable to fellow believers without complaining. What we do now, this is super important. But what should be just kind of just a normal part of the Christian life is We get together in each other's living rooms and we sit around kitchen tables and we share our lives and we share our food because that's what a family does and last we serve one another with the gifts of grace that you have received if you are a follower of jesus do you know that the spirit of god is in you and he is working And he wants to empower gifts in you to serve his purposes and to encourage this church. And if you're not leaning into that, you are missing out on something beautiful. For the sake of time, I just want to end by reading Peter's last words as he closes out this chapter. Chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Peter writes this. Dear friends, Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. Rejoice, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be a murderer or as a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. I haven't been to too many murdery churches. Maybe you've been to a church with meddlers. We shouldn't be like that. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household, and if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it's hard for a righteous person to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? He's saying, don't count on what you do. Trust in what Jesus has done for you. So, then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful Creator and continue to do good. What Peter is saying is the same thing we've been repeating each week in this series. Remember who you are, and let that be the thing that frames and drives all of what you do. Because when we know who we are, we have all the clarity and all the courage to do what Jesus has called us to do.